Welcome to Radio Rev, podcasting from the heart of healthcare in Minneapolis, Minnesota. This is the podcast for changemakers looking to do more than just health engagement. It's about getting people to take action and do things that actually improve their health. It's a radical idea, right? So we're talking to the leaders, innovators, movers, and shakers who are bringing new ideas, inspiring others, and leading the way. Welcome to another episode of Radio Rev. I'm your host, Jen Delwo. Thank you for joining us for episode six of season two. This series of episodes dives deep into social determinants of health, offering various viewpoints on the topic with a different industry expert each week with the hope that you take away new ideas, perspectives, and are inspired to look at SDOH in a new light from all angles. As a collective, the goal of these conversations is to inspire innovation and motivate the healthcare industry to work together to create meaningful solutions that help people live stronger, healthier lives. Today, we're joined by Alexandra DeCasel-Loftus, Director of Healthcare Partnerships at Second Harvest Heartland. Alexandra, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited. Yeah, we're excited to have you here and talk about all of the awesome work that Second Harvest is doing. The way I like to start is with a little bit of music trivia. What's your favorite 80s song? Wow, that's a really hard question. Um, so I grew up in two different countries during the 80s, so I'm going to take a little liberty and do one like pre-me moving to the United States and post-moving to the United States. Okay, Perfect. great. So pre-moving to the United States, I didn't have one particular song, but we often listen to a band called Menudo. It's where Ricky Martin came from. Yes. <laughs> and the reason I love it so much and I can't pick one song is really because that's what um, my neighbors and I would get together in the afternoons after school and go dance outside and we make up the routines. And it just reminds me of that joyful childhood play that we used to have. Um, and it was like the real first boy band that I actually followed or listened sure, to yeah. before I knew what a boy band actually was, <laughs> right? So, and then when I moved to, so anything Menudo at that time just always makes me happy because it's just silly and goofy. And then um, after I moved to the United States, I was still learning English, so I fell in love with movies, the movie soundtracks, right? Yes, so sorry, yes. I, I want to flip into Spanish now. So I, <laughs> I fell in love with like movie soundtracks because they were helping me with my English as well. And they were easy to understand, and it had dancing involved to it. So yeah. I followed a lot of movie soundtracks, and I would lot. And I, I know people are going to kill me with this because there's so much great '80s music out there. But I'm going to say Footloose because oh, it Footloose. always makes me want to dance. And I hear it <laughs> at parties, and I hear it at weddings, and everybody starts to dance, and everybody's got the routine down. It's like a thriller, right? Everybody kind of knows a little bit yes, of the routine. So absolutely. I'm going to say Footloose just because it was during a great time in my transition into the United States, and. It still continues with the dancing. It just, it, I cannot help but dance to it. And so I'm going to take that one, even though there's a ton of fantastic choices out there. Love it. And no one has mentioned Footloose before. So. Awesome. <laughs> Original. Yes. <laughs> so why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about yourself, a bit about your background and your journey with Second Harvest Heartland. Yeah, absolutely. So like I said, I was born um, in Latin America. So I was born in Caracas, Venezuela. Um, and I moved to the United States in 1985, moved to California. Big transition. Um, moved to the Bay Area. Um, I moved with my parents and my sister. Um, the rest of my family actually lives in Belgium. Um, so we're a little bit of a multi-international family here, so mm-hmm. that's great. Um, moving to California was really different, um, so it was hard for me to just pick one song, like I said, um, but I, I, you know, I took liberty. And then when I, I grew up, so I grew up there, I went to school at UC Davis, University of California, Davis, and got my environmental resource sciences degree. 
I've worked in nonprofits um, pretty much my entire life. I've worked in a research lab, I've worked at a, a healthcare center, um, all kinds of things. And then I moved to Minnesota in 1999, I think it was, for work. And I stayed, and everybody gives me a bit of a hard time. Like, how did you go from the Bay Area, California, to Minnesota? How do you make it through the winter? Yeah, but I was going to ask you how that transition went for you. <laughs> it was tough. I didn't have a coat. I had like, a ski jacket, and that was pretty much it. Um, but you, you know, you learn to layer, and I really love the seasons, mm-hmm. and I love how people are always outside enjoying, no matter what the seasons are, and you have different people. So I love the seasons. I love the people. So I worked in healthcare about twenty years now, twenty or so years, in different capacities. Never like necessarily in the clinical setting, but always like on programs and things like that, operations. And uh, I was working at the National Marrow Donor Program, Be the Match, for um, before I came to Second Heart. Oh, Heart sure. Yeah, which I'm, a lot of people here know that organization, great organization. Um, but my friend had sent me the job description at Second Heart Heartland. She says, I think this might be a good fit for you. It's got a little bit of healthcare. It's got people. It's got projects. It's innovative programming. So I took a look at it and applied, and I got the job in 2016. So I transitioned over to Second Heart Heartland, predominantly to, re, uh, to lead the health and hunger work that we're going to talk about today. So um, I've been there since almost coming up on four-year anniversary. So yeah, great. Thanks for that background. And so when it comes to Second Harvest Heartland, can you tell us a little bit about the work that the company does and what the mission of the organization is? Sure. I'll start with the mission because I think it really grounds us. And it's to end hunger together. Um, That's a new mission for us for this year, but it really does speak to the work that Second Harvest Heartland does with our community partners and our partners all over the um, state and nationally as well. So really to end hunger together. So for those who don't really know Second Harvest Heartland, um, it's one of our largest, most efficient hunger relief organizations in the nation. Um, We're part part of a group called Feeding America, which is the national umbrella group. Um, We work in partnership with about uh, a thousand different food shelves and other hunger relief programs where we help the one in 11 people or one in eight kids that are hungry every day here in the state. So um, really great organization. I think a lot of people have probably volunteered there or donated to that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't know it, I suggest you go to www.2harvest.org to learn more about our organization and the great work we do. Um, but on average, 77% of the food that our partner agencies distribute throughout the state um, comes from Second Harvest Heartland. So a good amount of, of food comes through us. And, uh, and in, in 2019, we helped provide a record 97 million meals um, to about half a million people um, wow. that we serve. So that's quite a big number. Yeah, that's um, amazing. The need continues to grow, unfortunately, but we are there and our partners are there with us to make sure that we're working towards ending hunger. So as we talk about social determinants of health, our theme for this entire season, terms like food scarcity and food deserts come up a lot. Can you talk more about what those terms mean specifically? What does it mean to live in a food desert? Sure. So simply put, a food desert is an area that has limited access to affordable and nutritious food. Um, there's quite a few of them. Um, roughly 235,000 Minnesotans reside, uh, residents excuse me, live more than 10 miles away from a grocery store or supermarket, um, which means that they really rely on their gas stations or their dollar stores or stores like that that are um, providing um, their version of their food. And unfortunately, they don't tend to have a lot of high produce quality or a variety of the food that they serve. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is more processed. We are seeing a change in that, which is great. Like you can go to gas stations now and buy more fruits than before, but mm-hmm. still, it's not quite there. So um, we know that um, they don't traditionally have the healthiest food available. Um, in our service area for Second Harvest Heartland, 37% of rural clients travel five miles or more to get to the closest food shelf. Oh, wow. um, so even if they're, even if we could provide a closer food shelf alternative. 
um, the limitations to what we can do with the food shelves, um, including it's for some of the folks that, that live that far out, they also have mobility issues or off, you know, so it's hard for them to get to the food shelf or um, on transportation or hours to the food shelf. For sure. That. So um, one of the stories that I like to share is is one of my actually one of my healthcare colleagues that that one of I one of my partner um, systems that I work with, she always tells a story and it always resonates with me because it really defines kind of what that looks like to live in a food desert. So she lives in a wonderful community, but it's, it's a small community, and their local store is a gas station, and it does have some produce, um, just kind of one little bit of the shelf, like you walk in the traditional versus, you know, at the convenience stores, it's like a wall of, 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 of water and juice and soda and all that, and maybe a tiny corner that has some fresh produce, right? Mm-hmm. So they always do Taco Tuesday nights, and she had forgotten to pick up the lettuce, so her husband had gone out to this convenience store to get the lettuce, they didn't have any, so he had to go to the town next to go find it there. He found it there, but it was kind of four dollars, which is expensive for a head of lettuce. Right. And the first three or four layers, they had to discard because it wasn't really the highest, it wasn't super good, right? Mm-hmm. Now they're very fortunate in the fact that they have transportation and they have funding and they have time to go buy groceries and go shop around. A lot of people don't. But she technically, even though how wonderful a community, she lives in a food desert, right? Mm-hmm. So she needs to go far to get groceries that she doesn't have access to, to the nutritious food that she needs um, to serve her family. So that's just an example of what it's like to live in a food desert. Yeah, that's a great example. So if you live in a food desert and are impacted by food scarcity or simply just can't afford diverse, nutrient-rich foods, what are the health, health implications of a poor diet? Well, there's quite a few of them, right? As you can imagine, and knowing you know, we know that hunger and health are strongly connected. I think most people are starting to get really aware of that. Um, it's not a new concept, but it's coming really to the forefront nowadays, right? Food is medicine again, not a new concept. You're hearing mm-hmm. that term being used a lot more now in a lot of different settings, which is great. But again, it's it's rising that acknowledgement how important it is to not only eat but eat healthy foods that will benefit your health and and, and take care of yourself. Um, better nutrition leads to better health outcomes and quality of life. That's not, again, not rocket science, but again, it's worth reminding people of the connection. And poor diet is a major risk factor for numerous chronic diseases. Um, and food insecure populations specifically are 1. Times, uh, 1.7 times more likely to have diabetes, 1.4 times more likely to have heart disease, and two times more likely to have a stroke. So by dealing with food insecurity, you're also upping your risk of having some of these chronic diseases that are diet-related, which is really unfortunate. In addition, many people who experience hunger are making tough decisions between food and other necessities, including their medical care or the medicines, right? Mm-hmm. This is kind of the broader picture social deterrence of health. They're always kind of having to make tough decisions as it is. So not only does that impact their physical health and their chronic disease and their um, nutrition health, but it also think about how much stress that is to have to make those decisions every month or every time you have to say, okay, am I going to buy food or take my medicine, or do I go to my doctor appointment, or do right. I give me a utilities bill? In a lot of cases, in a lot of cases, they're dealing with more more than one of them, so two or three at a time, um, and over several months. So it's not like a one-time decision; it's the real their life that they're living. Um, so that, of course, impacts their health as well. Yeah, this reminds me of a conversation I had on an earlier episode in this season where our guest, Craig Kennedy, was talking about how there's not a one-size-fits-all solution to social determinants of health. So even if you're able to solve one problem, that doesn't mean that a person isn't struggling with multiple. So if you can you know, help people get the food that they need, but they might also have the transportation issue, so now they can't get to the food that they need. So it's a, a web that we need to address holistically rather than just pick out certain individual elements. 
Absolutely, they're very well interconnected. And some folks that have health issues may not have transportation issues, and right. some that you know it, it can vary. So, so it's great to have a, like a larger approach to um, certain topics. You need to understand that, or the way that we work specifically is we work with targeted groups of populations. Not we're not going to boil the ocean on this because to right. really truly get the outcomes that we're looking for, to really have the health impacts, you have to kind of identify the population and what their outcomes are that you're looking to achieve. And that may be different for each one of our partners. It may be different within the institution um, that we're working with. So that's a really great point. It's a, it's a big field out there. We do need to support each other, but there's also areas where target interventions are, are, are more effective at times. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So how does this affect individuals in the way they potentially interact or receive care within the healthcare system? Yeah, so food insecure individuals in general um, may have not received traditional health care in the sense that they may be accessing, they may not be accessing health care at all because it's expensive or they don't have insurance or they have another barrier. Or if they are accessing health um, care, we often see that um, for the, with the partners that we work with, their patients are showing up more in the ER or inpatient or they're using um, community paramedics or 911 as their transportation to the clinic, oh, for instance. Sure. So they may be engaging with healthcare, but just not necessarily in the most optimal ways that we would like them to engage with their healthcare provider. Um, so there's a lot of different complexities that go with the people that we serve um, and how they interact with healthcare. That kind of goes to my earlier point of really understanding the patient population that you're trying to serve and then seeing how you can impact them. Is it food insecurity and transportation or is it just one or the other or things like that? You right, a real personalized approach. Yeah, it's worth digging into the data and then and working with organizations saying what data can you bring to the table to help us identify what are the real barriers versus us making assumptions about the people that we're trying to serve. Um, and I think with our program and with the Food Arrest program with our partners, uh, whether they're providers or health systems or other community-based organizations, they understand the importance of addressing social determinants of health and they, uh, they come with their own strengths and values to the table, but also with a real sense of partnership of oh, knowing that they wanted to address this together and knowing that this is uh, something that we should all work together on it mm -hmm. um, and finding those strong connections and bringing able to leverage those. And we work very closely with the partners to design the program um, around food and security solutions and as well as the chronic disease management. Um, we have very robust programs and we help folks. Sadly, it's our area of expertise to work with lower income people. That's a lot of what Second Harbor's Heartland and our partners do versus a health system has a wide range of people that they're serving. So we can kind of bring that lens as well. Like this is how we can engage with them. This is the common trends that we're starting to see in this population that we're trying to serve. So I think again, being able to work with them on that level. Um, and another thing I think is really important is because it really benefits the individual is that we work very closely with our healthcare partners and we provide training with them because they're kind of all over the spectrum starting to engage in this work. But we've been working with food insecurity for a really long time. So it's kind of our area of expertise as well. Um, so we work in that and help them when they're thinking about, do I even start screening? How do I screen? Is it paper? Is it electronic? How do I approach this conversation with a, uh, with a patient? Mm -hmm. Some of them are really not ready. They're just not comfortable with it yet. Some partners are absolutely comfortable on their way ahead, right? So we help kind of with their training, but we also bring the staff in and say, like when you send us a referral or when we engage with your patient, this is what's going to happen with them. So they understand what happens when they refer a patient to us. So they're not just giving it to anybody. And that builds the kind of that trust with the patient, with the healthcare Absolutely. provider, and with the community-based organizations because we're doing it together um, and leveraging our strengths. And so I think that really helps the patient feel more confident about either accepting your resources or being more open with their partners. And then on the flip side of that, because we're able to provide the information back at the patient level to our healthcare providers, so we're kind of closing that referral loop, 
as you would say. Um, Nixon, that they, what they use, they can take that information back when they mix in the, the care coordinator needs with that patient. They say, hey, I saw that you connected with this NAP benefits, or hey, I saw that you connected to this resource. And so it kind of continues that dialogue with them. So it's not like a one time shot, you know, intervention. Mm-hmm. So. Throughout the season, we've talked with several different people about the scope of SDOH, and we touched on this already a little bit about how there's not a one size fits all solution to address them. However, there is a lot of amazing work happening to address specific areas, an example being food insecurity. How is Second Harvest Heartland making an impact to address SDOH? Yeah, great question. So Second Harvest Heartland has been, like I said earlier, really involved in the food space for a really long time. So we have some robust programs and really strong programs already in place. You know, for instance, we know that children can't focus and learn in school if they're hungry. Um, so we've got child hunger programs that we work with very closely. Um, we know that workers have a hard time focusing um, when they're at work if they haven't eaten. Um, and then that can lead to lost productivity as well as potentially losing their jobs. So we try to make sure that we're making an outreach to, to the whole population that could benefit. And then, of course, as you know, there's a huge increase in rise in obesity and heart disease and, and chronic diseases that are diet related, which is kind of where the healthcare sector is starting to come in um, with our partnership with our Food Rights Program. Um, and so we offer a variety of services. And when you engage with the Food Rights Program, we also have all that resource behind us that Second Harvest Heartland brings to the table, mm-hmm. right? So we may be the face of the healthcare programming, but we leverage everything that Second Harvest Heartland brings, whether that is connecting to child programs or connecting to senior programs as well, um, which is a really great benefit. We're kind of all around encompassing around that work. So, so we've now mentioned Food RX multiple times. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit more about the program? Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, it's the it's the healthcare space that. Um, Second Harvest Harlan has invested in. Um, it started in actually about four years ago, spurred by research that was happening at the Feeding America, that national organization I mentioned, um, and as well as our partner with Hennepin Healthcare. We've been working with them for over a decade uh, as far as identifying folks that are food secure and sending referrals over to Second Harvest Harlan, and we already those take care of them. So it started with those two things really kind of jumping off the base, knowing how important it is to intersect with health and hunger, right? So but we strongly feel that by building truly meaningful connection between individuals, the healthcare partners, and the communities that we serve around food security solutions, um, we really embrace the concept of food as medicine. But with the goal of not only providing nutritious food, which is important, but also really with the health lens focus on we want to improve the health outcomes, we want to improve the health of the population that we're working with, we want to reduce the cost of care and the utilization, the appropriate utilization of care as well as really engaging patients um, in their care, whether it's with their care coordinator or health client, but keeping them less using the ER and more really integrating and using the care that best serves them and supports them in their needs. Um, which has been great. So I mentioned that we started with two research studies, and I just kind of want to call out our partners in that because they took the first step with us in, mm-hmm. in this space. So it's Center Care Health up in St. Cloud, where the first one that we did a study with, um, and then the second one that we're, just, that we're wrapping up right now is Hennepin Healthcare as well. So the, the core of the program is kind of the same, just the execution was a little bit different, but really looking at those things. Um, health outcomes, so A1C scores for our diabetic patients. Are we improving cost of care? Are we improving patient engagement with the system? What else are we learning from doing an intervention like that? And unfortunately, I can't go into very deep details because we've written our manuscripts and we're looking to publish. So sure. um, maybe I'll come back on so the topic. Stay tuned. Stay tuned, yeah. everyone. Exciting news coming your way. Um, but really, the outcomes that we're seeing is, yes, we're reducing A1C scores. Um, yes, we're reducing cost of care. And I'm not going to claim that our program is the one that's reducing all total cost of care. But we are seeing that trend. And we're also seeing the fact that we're 
Um, if we're not reducing the cost of care, we're, we're below the trend line of folks that are not enrolling in our program. Um, and I'm not, again, I'm not saying that it's all because of our program, but we are seeing that across all our programs, which means that um, we do have some impact in that space, which is showing some return back to the healthcare providers that we work with and health plans that we work with, um, which is great news. So then in 2018, great news, we started actually contracting directly with the healthcare and health plans. And this was really important for us for a couple of different reasons. We started with, with very generous philanthropic funding, and that allowed us to set up the program, to set up our patient data warehouse, to become HIPAA compliant, well, following HIPAA guidelines, and mm -hmm. all that critical infrastructure that you need to set up a, a new program. But unfortunately, with philanthropic funding, oftentimes, when the grant runs out, you have to pull out, it's the end of the program. And we were finding that with our research case, our clients were saying, well, well, what now? Like, I want to enroll again, or I have a family member who wants to enroll. So we had always intention of more of a business model, where we're gonna work directly with partners, uh, in healthcare and be a partner at the table where we get paid for the services that we provide um, because we're able to provide a lot of different services for our, our partners with the intent that that would allow us to stay uh, with the community. So really sustainable models and then also scalable models. Mm -hmm. So we started with some pilots, great, proof the concept, proof the ROI, proof that it worked, but now we really want to scale it. We want to make sure that we are impacting a larger group of patients that could benefit. It kind of goes with the health equity, right? We have great health in the state as far as healthcare, but our health equity could be a little more work, I would mm -hmm. say. Um, so this allows us to expand and sustain the program um, in a much more robust fashion. So that was really exciting in 2018 when we started with those contracts. And today we have um, eight contracts, um, but we represent over 15 clinics. Um, yeah, so in Minnesota, just, in Minnesota and Western Wisconsin. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and this is really great because we um, offer a portfolio of services, but we also partner with all the other food banks in the state of Minnesota, Western Wisconsin, and North Dakota, East North Dakota, to say instead of everybody creating their own healthcare program in the food banks, they all opted to use the Food Direct program. Um, so we work with partnership with them. So we are able to to see patients and, and help individuals all across the state in Western Wisconsin and North Dakota because we have those relationships. It also makes it a lot easier for our partners that they only have to contract with one of us versus six of us with mm -hmm. different, you know, and they also know that their, their patients are going to get the same program no matter where they live in the state of Minnesota, right, or in Western Wisconsin, which is really great. And we have a really robust um, portfolio of services coming through with FoodRx because, again, like I mentioned, um, our partners are all over the place as far as some of them are just starting out acknowledging that we want to talk about food insecurity, and some are really ingrained in it, and we're doing chronic disease management around this program specifically. So I'm going to kind of quickly walk through some of the services that we offer, if that's okay? That'd be great. Awesome. So the first one is, is very similar to the initial work we had done with Hennepin Healthcare, where um, we can help with food insecurity screening, whether it's, where it's being done by our partners or being done by us. We'll screen for food insecurity. We'll connect those folks with food resources and or SNAP application assistance. Not everybody qualifies for SNAP or is even interested in SNAP. So we want to ensure that for those that aren't, they're still getting the food resources in the community that they need. So that's like their first intervention, right? That's the first touch point that we can have with a, with a partner. Um, and then once they connect with us that way, they are able to stay within us. They're in our system. <laughs> I'm using air quotes here, you know, but they're, you know, sure. they know that they can always call us back. So we help with recertification for SNAP, things like that. So um, we're, we're, it's not like they just call us once and then that's it. We, we build okay. a solid relationship with them and we walk them through the applications with them. So we don't just mail them the information, we walk them through, we follow up, that you go to the county, all that very hands-on, high touch. We're also having multicultural staff and we have a language line, knowing that not everybody's fluent in English. I know how hard it was to fill out my documents when I moved to the United States, and I speak, I would say, fairly good English. You do. And I have a master's degree, and I still have difficulty applying for some of the government, like for the for my citizenship. So we're very conscious of that. Um, 
especially as the populations are starting to shift and change, right? Yeah. Well, and that can be considered a social determinant as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the other thing that we provide is a stabilization box. It's 12 pounds of shelf-stable food. It comes in a box. It comes with three recipes because we really want to encourage them to eat that nutritious food. And that's used for instance, like we know we've heard from providers that say, I am, I'm okay with asking the question, but then what? I send them a referral, but I want to do something right then and there on the spot, right? So this is something that they can give to a patient right right then and there, you know, if the patient is interested, and then they can take it home. It's also used when patients are, are discharged and they in their own home and we don't know if they have food at home, they can take this box of food with them as well. Okay. Or and it also helps medication adherence, right? Because if they need to take their medication with food and they don't have food, you know, we're not going to have the efficacy of medication as well. So there's a lot of different uses for that stability box. Yeah, that's it, great. Yeah. And then we have our big program, the one I've mentioned a couple of times, and that's a chronic disease management program, right? That's the two research studies are based on that program. It's 30 pounds of shelf-stable food um, that they can think. It's, it's disease-specific, um, so it's, we have a diabetes and a heart disease box right now. It's also culturally specific, so we know that to encourage folks to eat the healthy food that's available that may not be their norm diet, um, and to encourage that, we the food is we have a, a traditional standard American, for a better word, um, a Hispanic and Somali diet that we function, and the food reflects those cultures, as do the recipes that are in the boxes, um, and it's also translated, and so they can get this box uh, once a month, and they can do it for six months, nine months, or twelve months, um, and then the great thing is that because the program is adaptable to what our healthcare partners want, in some cases the patients come to the clinic to pick it up. And in some cases, it's delivered by a community paramedic. In some cases, um, they can go to one of our agency partners to pick it up. So there's a variety of ways that we can work with the patients, knowing that, like you say, social determinants of health is all. There, there can be multiple barriers. So if mm-hmm. transportation is a barrier, if they can go to the food shop and pick up other things like produce or other items and get their food box, that's one way to kind of reduce some of that barrier. So we're always kind of mindful of what makes it the easiest for the patients, but also working very closely to integrate with the clinic staff. So not to create a new process, but maybe enhance a process that they already have around this. Um, we have different models, like I mentioned, we either integrate directly with the clinic and we're working with the clinic staff. Um, we integrate with care coordination. In some cases, there's a health coach that's really actively managing that patient. And in that case, we just deliver the box. We're just responsible for that component. But again, we're all over the spectrum in a sense of what we can do for our partners. Um, which is really great because um, we want to sure we're meeting them where they are so we can meet the patients where they're at. Um, yes. Especially, right? Yeah, and that I just love this so much because it is such a high level of personalization because if you want to get someone to do something, this is something that Rebel thinks about all the time, You there's not a one-size-fits, I feel like I've said this multiple times, but there's not a one-size-fits-all solution. Not everyone is going to respond to messages in the same way and having the different recipes available to people, it, it's just so smart and it makes so much sense because that's what what personalization is. If you want people to do something specific, you need to meet them where they are with things that you know that they like in order to be adherent. Um, I think it's also important to, to know that um, we can be involved throughout the process. We also do end-to-end program management. So we can, you know, we can create patient registries and manage them from you know, outreach to the patient to recruitment to the program to enrollment to offboarding them to getting them back to your clinic. We can we can be that comprehensive with our partners, knowing that some of them are under resourced right now as well. Um, it doesn't always have to fall everything on the healthcare partner um, that we work with. And think, like I mentioned earlier, that something that's unique is again that we have a data warehouse and we exchange information with our partners at different levels for a couple of different reasons. A, we want to be able to like say. 
make it personalized. So identifying what are the barriers that that clinic is encountering, what can we, what solutions can we come up with? So the community paramedic was that, knowing that we were seeing a higher dropout rate, the number one reason was I can't get to the clinic. So then the community paramedic stepped in and said, okay, for those that have that barrier, why don't we enroll them with that? Then we will home deliver with them, which is fantastic. But we didn't know that if we weren't sharing data back and forth around the programming. And it also allows us to bring in information specifically for the patients that we serve around their health outcomes, their A1C scores, their, um, the hospital utilization, things like that. And then for some that can, we can also bring in claims data. So we can really provide a holistic picture of what the intervention is, is how it's affecting the patient and what the impact may be um, in, in conjunction with the work that our healthcare partners are doing. Um, and we're really pushing that data sharing just because it's it helps us understand where you are at and where your patients are at throughout the whole process of it, not just at the end when you're making the final measurements. Yeah, it's so important. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And then also, some of our partners are now providing the information after the patient has, has completed the program, so we can truly measure, is this intervention having sustained changes, sustained behavioral changes, especially around the chronic disease management? It's great when you're in the program, but like you said, it takes time to change your behavior. Are they sustaining those changes? Are you seeing those outcomes carry over three months after the program has ended, six months after the program has ended? So now mm -hmm. we're starting to get that kind of level of data back, and that's really important for us to make sure that these are impactful changes that are long-lasting for the patients. Right, and not just being able to meet the patient where they are, but meet your partners where they are to understand the barriers that the clinics are facing. I haven't heard of anyone else doing like taking that extra step and doing that. So to hear you say that you're doing that is really innovative. Great, yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's critical to the success of the program, right? You know, we wanna make sure that you aren't necessarily creating more work for your partners, but you're working with your partners. And we co-design our programs together with them from the very beginning. Um, what do you already have existing? What can we tap into? What can we bring that you don't already have? You know, and really, really co-creating a program, right? Mm -hmm. Which is really, really important um, if, it's, if you're gonna get the outcomes that you're looking for. Yeah, a true partnership. Yeah. Speaking of scale, could you see this being rolled out on a national level? I think so. I think it really depends. Right now we're really focused in this day. We have, like I said, we just started in 2018 like real contracting work. So, you know, it's just, just been barely two years, right? Or, you know, which is great. There's still a lot of need out here in the state of Minnesota. We really like to focus. That's our, that's our home turf, right? So in western Wisconsin, too, because Second Harvest Heartland does cover territories in western Wisconsin, too. Once we, we've kind of done our work here and really proved it out, we're more than happy to scale to a national level. I already work with a lot of the food banks and kind of provide what, hey, this is how we worked it. This is a situation in, in the state of Minnesota. Feel free to take what you're learning from me and, and apply to your state as well. But yeah, or if, it, if that would give me a rise and if it's a good fit, yeah. We think we could do it. We're proud of our program. Yeah, I, I would be too. <laughs> So shifting gears a little bit to member experience, how have you seen the Food RX program impact individuals? Are there any success stories you can share? Yeah, absolutely. And it's really great because because we do survey our participants, especially around the chronic disease program, throughout the time and they're and learn from them what is working and what isn't and are they using the recipes? Are you eating the food? Do you like to see something else in the food that we didn't think of? And all our recipes are based are developed by a registered dietitian okay. and the community, right? So we're always asking for additional feedback. It's like, just because it was good two years ago doesn't mean it's the right thing right now, right? Mm -hmm. So we get feedback that way, which is fantastic. But they're also able to share comments and stories with us, um, which is like the best part of the job when you get to read those, right? Absolutely. Like, you sit there and it's like, oh, yes, like this worked for them and this made them <laughs> happy. And you know, sometimes you get a comment that makes your program better, that is more of a critique, which is also very important. Um, but I'm gonna read just two of the quotes that we had 
Um, there's also a, some more on our website at toharvest.org slash foodorx if you want some more, but I could spend hours talking about our patients because <laughs> they're amazing. Um, but the, the, two, the two quotes are, um, the program is highly beneficial to help support my household and teach me proper eating habits. Again, that was really great to hear because they talked about the sustainability of their health post-program, um, building those skills necessary to do that, which was really nice to hear the patient say versus our assumption. Right. right. So that was that was very good important. validation. Yeah. And we got a lot of comments that are in that genre of feedback. So we feel like we're getting some good validation on the program. The other quote is, this program is such a blessing because I need the food, but I also know I need to start eating healthy. And when they're getting the food as part of their treatment from the as kind of like a prescription, they kind of re-emphasizes the need to, do, to eat healthy. But it also, it's free for them. It's all free for the patient. So it encourages them to try the food that's in the box because it's not a cost to them. So one of the things that we joke about is like the whole grain pasta. It's come a long, long way, <laughs> but for some people it still has that stigma to it or that weird like, oh, oh I don't know about that. I want whole grain. Right, but it's, yeah. in, it's part of, or you know, it's part of their uh, box, so why not give it a try, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and it turns out that people really like it because it has come a long way. Um, and we've um, tested all the recipes ourselves as well. So oh, that's yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. So we had community members tested as well as the staff. So, and then another great like besides the patient storage, which I think are for me really empowering and really important because it's the voice of the patient and then our goal is to then follow up with some focus groups to, to continue to learn about the process um it's like i was saying earlier we are seeing trends in reducing a1c scores for those that are diabetic um lifestyle changes related to their diet and related to their activity levels you know the feedback we're getting from them saying yep i am eating more vegetables i am eating more fruit i am eating more in line with what my disease management um i need to do for my disease management and then, of course, because we're second hour retirement, we're seeing, you know, important for us to see an improvement in food security. And we mm -hmm. are seeing that. And that's interesting because we also had a one program that we did. It wasn't a requirement to be food insecure, um, but there were Medicaid patients. There was just an understanding that because you're Medicaid, you could benefit from something like that. So we asked the question, but it was not a requirement. And at the end, same set of questions for, for both populations of food secure and food insecure. The food secure said um, they felt more food secure after the program. Oh, that's so great. Something to keep in mind is that just because somebody's saying that they're food secure, that doesn't necessarily mean they're fully food secure, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they're getting the right food mm -hmm. for their disease management. True. So, and food security can change at any given time. You know, for for somebody they have a car accident, all of a sudden they have medical bills or things like that. So it was really interesting to be able to offer a program not based on food security, but also seeing that it still have positive impacts, right? Especially coming from a food bank. You know, this is what we, that's what we hope to do. Hope right. And hunger. So yeah. And then, oh, and I just want to say like, some quick stats for, for sure. our program, just because I'm I'm really um, touched by the fact that we um, in in our fiscal year uh, 2019 we served over 4,500 patients um, across all the services that we provide, wow. and we're looking to you know we're adding new partners constantly, and that allows us to even reach more patients. That's a lot of patients um, that have benefited from our services, and, and I can't thank our partners out there enough for, for trusting us with their patients and engaging with us um, in, in this effort because it's super important, and, and we just hope that the number continues to go up and that we can, as a community, really work to impact the health. Yeah. Um, but we were really proud of that number. Yeah, that's amazing. You should be proud of that number. So overall, what has the impact of the FoodRx program been at the health plan or provider level? Yeah, so I've talked a little bit about some of the outcomes, you know, the A1C, the reduced cost of care, um, things like that. I also kind of wanted to uh, kind of point out that the patient engagement with their provider and the patient engagement with their health plan. 
Um, this, we have a higher contact rate for this particular population than most outreach methods provided by healthcare providers. So that wasn't something we didn't know before, which we learn now. So our, our staff was trained to, in ways to contact this patient population and to talk with them. So that was really impressive that we were like, oh, huh, I didn't know that about us. Look at that. So, yeah, new learning. Yeah. yeah. So we're trying, you know, sort of trusting us more and more with that patient population to, to do the initial outreach for them as well. Um, also, like I said, the reduction of claims and a, a lower trend, um, improved engagement. We're hearing from our patients that they're now more engaged with their care coordination on a routine basis, which is really important. We want them to be able to with care coordinator or with the health coaches and things like that. Let's keep them out of the ER. Let's keep them out of inpatient units if we can. So um, we want to continue to see that trend as a, they know that their healthcare providers are there for them and they know the second car department is there for them as well. And then we're there for them together is really important. And of course, I have to say this because you know it's it's healthcare. We, there are a lot of really great results that I cannot talk about because I have non-disclosure agreements with our sure. partners, and it's a competitive market out there. But um, like I said, we do tailor our program based on the measures and the outcomes that the healthcare partners looking to achieve. Um, and so, unfortunately, some of that means we have to keep some of that information a little bit in our culture heart. But mm-hmm. um, I'm sorry to say, but that's just the way. That's just the way. That's how it works. That's how it works. So just. Just know that we also keep information confidential, you know, with our partners. That's part of our trust building with them as well, right? Yeah, so, makes sense. Yeah. So shifting gears um, away from all of the amazing work that Second Harvest is doing, I want to talk about you a little bit. What's the coolest thing that you've done lately? This podcast. <laughs> I'm so excited for this. I've never done a podcast, and I and I have um, stage fright, um, public speaking. So this is a great opportunity. I'm trying to say yes to things that are that are good for me and that will grow me and so I really appreciate this opportunity. This has been a super fun thing to be part of. Yeah, we've loved having you be a part of it and sharing the story of everything that you guys are doing at Second Harvest. It's it's amazing work and we really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for the Radio Rev podcast brought to you by Revel. If you found today's conversation as informative and energizing as we did, please take a moment and subscribe to the podcast. As always, we invite you to learn more about us and check out all of our content at rebel-health.com forward slash radio rev.